0: Well, when real estate developer Peter Cummings first stepped into his position as chairman of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in 1998, he began writing personal thank you notes to any donor who contributed $500 or more to the orchestra. He couldn't bear the thought of a symphony patron receiving a form letter with their name accidentally misspelled or maybe one of his friends being generically thanked in a form letter with Peter's stamped signature at the bottom. Among the many handwritten notes mailed out was one mailed to Mary Webber Parker. Mary was the daughter of one of Detroit's leading families in an earlier generation. She was now the heiress to the Hudson's department store Fortune. She'd moved away from Detroit nearly a lifetime ago and had settled in California and lived there for most of her life, but was now widowed and residing in an upscale nursing home outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And for some reason, Mary decided to send a one-time gift of $50,000 to her hometown symphony. Peter's handwritten thank you to Mary was as usual prompt and gracious and unexpected. Mary had only been back to Detroit twice in the last 20 years, but it must have thrilled her heart to hear of the orchestra's revitalization made possible in part by her generous contribution, because two weeks later, she wrote, pledging another $50,000. And within days, Peter had written her again He expressed his delighted gratitude and offered to come over from Michigan to visit her sometime. He would be in the area nearby when he took his daughter to register for college in Hartford the coming fall. He made no appeal for putting Mrs. Parker on the annual giving campaign, no traditional ask, as they would say in fundraising circles, just a kind personal effort to say thank you. Several months passed. And then in a letter dated June 13th, Mary accepted Peter's request to come visit her in the fall. And if he wouldn't mind, she would like to give not $50,000, but $500,000 to the Detroit Symphony. Not once, but once a year for five years. Two and a half million dollars. Not out of duty, not out of coercion, and not because she didn't have plenty of other suitors who would have bent over backwards to lure her as a benefactor. She did it because someone was thankful. And they took the time to say so. That's the power of gratitude. A genuinely thankful spirit stirs the people it touches. A genuinely thankful spirit stirs the people it touches. And while we all know that an attitude of gratitude is desirable and Christ-like, most people struggle to fully embrace gratitude and to set it up as the default response to life's daily grind. Many people can be thankful and even express thankfulness when they're pleasantly surprised by an unexpected blessing. But if we take a closer look at ourselves, most of us would have to admit that gratitude doesn't really enter our thinking, much less come out of our mouths as we walk through the normal routines and challenges and disappointments and the grind of everyday life. Because of our sin nature, Our our human heart is inclined toward ingratitude. It just leans that way. It's true, isn't it? I mean, most of us who have been through the parenting years would readily admit that none of us had to teach our kids how to be selfish and self-centered, right? But all of us can remember needing to take lots of time to teach our kids to say thank you. And the number of times when they ran off without saying thank you, and we had to call them back and ask them to say it, right? And then as kids become adults, a spirit of ingratitude can take root in our hearts as we begin to compare our lot in life with the life others have been dealt. And when that happens... Then the monsters of envy and bitterness and discontent can rear their ugly heads. And all too quickly, all too quickly, our daily blessings from the Lord, which we receive every day, they're either forgotten or they become overlooked. And all of a sudden, now doing the dishes pushes us to grumble And complain rather than give thanks for the fact that we actually have dishes to eat off of or maybe that we enjoyed a hot meal together so what's the alternative what's the alternative well believe it or not the bible actually calls us to cultivate a thankful heart if we want to be truly christ-like we must invite the holy spirit to develop a grateful spirit within us a thankful spirit is not something we can create on our own. We must have the Holy Spirit's help. And we must cooperate with him as he seeks to do that work in our heart. And here's the payoff, because there is a payoff. If we will cooperate with God as he cultivates this thankfulness within our hearts, we will begin to reflect more fully the excellency of Christ, and people around us will be drawn to Jesus like a moth to a flame. You show me a person with a grateful spirit, thankful even in the face of disappointments, and I will show you a person who can capture the attention of their co-workers, and they will win the right to be heard by their friends. Because there is something beautiful and winsome and even otherworldly about a person who can look life in the face every day and still choose gratitude. There is something really attractive about a thankful heart. And because the Holy Spirit calls each of us to this, I also want that sweet spirit of thankfulness to permeate our culture here at Christ Community Church. I want us to be a people who whose thoughts and attention are increasingly and more quickly drawn to worship God for how he has blessed us, rather than tripping up and stumbling into this grumbling and complaining mode because one of our personal preferences wasn't met. And when people visit our service or stop by the building during the week, it is my prayer that they will sense among us a joyful spirit in the air and feel this genuine thankfulness in our hearts as they worship and visit with us on a Sunday morning. And just to be clear, I need to be growing in this thankfulness just as much as the next person, because my own words and my thoughts too often flow from a heart that leans toward ingratitude. So I'm praying every bit as much for my own heart as I am praying for all of us Collectively. Now, in light of all of this, we're starting a new series this morning called Thankful. And each Sunday in November, we will be challenged to consider more carefully how a thankful spirit talks and acts and thinks, and will be encouraged to cooperate more fully with the Holy Spirit as he does his refining work in our hearts. And each week, we will look at a particular psalm which will help us to anchor our hearts in the bedrock truth of Scripture rather than than in the shifting sands of feelings and circumstances. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 100. And it's the psalm that I read earlier for you during our welcome. Psalm 100 is part of a group of psalms Called royal psalms, or maybe you uh, might be entitled enthronement psalms. And the main body of this group of psalms is actually Psalm 95 through 99. There, There are a couple others scattered around, but the main body of them is 95 through 99. These royal psalms focus on God's kingship, his sovereign reign over creation. And in these Psalms, the people praise God and acknowledge his kingly rule over peoples and kingdoms and the affairs of this world. And now that praise culminates as Psalm 100 calls for and even demands a much greater, broader response. Psalm 100 calls for the whole earth, the whole earth to raise their voices in worship to celebrate God's wise, gracious, and good rule. And it's a fitting climax as it brings this grouping of royal psalms to a close. The 100th Psalm might have a title in some of your Bibles. Some say it's a psalm of thanksgiving, or some of your Bibles might say a psalm of praise. And it's the only psalm in the entire 150 psalms that actually has this heading, and it certainly lives up to that title, as there is not a single melancholy note in the entire score. It's a psalm of celebration, enthusiastically calling all people everywhere to offer their worship with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. This psalm contains only five verses, but the content of the psalm and its message to us is full and abundant, and it's challenging, and if we're willing to accept its invitation, these five verses have the power to change our perspective and to restore a spirit of thankfulness in our heart. Those five verses have the power to do that. The structure of the psalm, how it's set up, is really quite simple. It contains two stanzas. Both of them are set up in a um, in a similar way. the two sta- Each stanza opens with a command to worship or give thanks. And then each command to worship is followed by several reasons to do so. So we're going to walk through the Psalm together. We're going to unpack the ideas that it contains. And at the end, we'll spend a few minutes talking about how these ideas apply to our lives. The Psalm opens, verse one, obviously, With a call to worship. It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. And with this highly charged burst of energy, the psalmist dives in. Shout for joy to the Lord, he says. And this shout was understood to be a shout of loyalty. It was a shout in which you would pay homage, much like a citizen would joyfully declare their allegiance to a beloved king. And in the same, it would be very similar to a person who might proclaim, long live the king. It would be a similar kind of shout. Now notice, the psalmist directs people to proclaim their praise to the Lord. And in most of your Bibles, the word Lord is written in all capital letters. Whenever you see the word Lord written in all capital letters, that word is actually in the Hebrew text Yahweh. It is the sacred and holy name of God. In this this opening uh, call to worship, the psalmist is not suggesting that people around the world should shout for joy to whatever God they happen to believe in that day. Not at all. He is directing them to give their praise specifically to Yahweh, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the God who has revealed himself in the Scriptures. And the psalmist is calling for all of the earth to participate. All of the earth should respond with enthusiastic worship. And even though most nations around Israel at that time had not submitted themselves to the Lord and they were not prepared at all to worship God in this way, still, still, this call for the whole world to worship put into words the deepest desires in the hearts of God's people. Because God's true worshipers yearn for all people everywhere to turn from their sin and give their allegiance to the true and living God. Now in verse 2, the psalmist says, worship the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful songs two observations to make about this. First, the word worship is literally the word serve, and that's the word some of your Bibles may actually use in verse two, the word serve. This is a comprehensive term in Hebrew, and here's what I mean by that. It's used in the Old Testament to describe some formal acts of praise that would take place in the temple, which is how it's being used in this verse. But it is also used elsewhere in places like Genesis chapter 2 to describe ordinary work. Ordinary work. And what this means is that serving the Lord with gladness is not just something we do when we gather on a Sunday morning. It's bigger than that. It's a worship that encompasses all of life. What you do on the other six days of the week is to be done for the Lord. Therefore, your work is just as much a part of your worship as is your time here on a Sunday morning. And if you remember, we talked about that a couple of different times when we studied Daniel chapter 6. The second observation is that our worship should be offered with glad and sincere hearts, and it's not to be offered in quiet and subdued tones. Though in our day, it'll be muffled a little bit because we have to wear masks, right? But worship, for the psalmist, worship is meant to be the special occasion for joy. So beginning in verse 1, we're told, shout for joy. Another translation says, shout triumphantly. And another, another version says, make a joyful noise. And then as we move into the second verse, the spirit of our worship is described as worshiping with gladness and with joyful songs. In other words, let your worship of God come from hearts that are just overflowing with gladness. For the Lord is honored when we rejoice with glad hearts when our service is saturated with joy, or when our music and singing is proclaimed with celebration and with volume, with volume. Years ago, when I was younger, there was a local radio station that was known for the catchphrase crank up the volume and rip off the knob. So I love that radio station. <laughs> There was another one, I'll tell you this, It's not in my notes, but I'm just funny. (laughs) There was another, there was an advertisement for, uh, they were selling tickets for a tractor pole, and the catchphrase was, we'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. (laughs) I love that. I want to use that in inviting people to church someday come on in, we'll give you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge, right? <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so the psalmist is saying, let's, let's turn up the volume. Now, I know there are some places in the Psalms that invite us to be quieter, more reflective and reverent, such as Psalm 4610, which says, be still and know that I am God. But then there are other places like this one where God seems to have his hand on the, on the volume button and he is cranking it up. Now, this doesn't mean that the volume of our instruments need to be uncomfortably loud for everybody, but it does mean that when we gather, God wants our worship to be sung with full voices, with overflowing hearts, and with unrestrainable Enthusiasm. It means that our worship should come from hearts that are full and spilling over with joy and with gladness that cannot be contained. So let me pause and ask a question for you right now. Do these verses describe your heart for worship? Do do they describe how you feel when you come on a Sunday morning? And do these verses describe our gathering together? Is our worship characterized by joy and gladness and enthusiasm? Are our voices full even behind our masks? Because here's the deal. Psalm 100 is certainly talking to all churches everywhere and asking them to to bring joyful and enthusiastic worship. But here's the thing for us to reflect on this morning. Right now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit and Psalm 100 are speaking to you and me. Just you and me. To Christ Community Church. And the Spirit is calling us to turn up the volume on our worship. And again, that's not necessarily the volume on our sound system, but it's the volume of our hearts And I want us to consider how we might respond to that call. And so we're going to circle back to this in just a few minutes. But let's keep working our way through the psalm. Verse 3 provides five reasons why the intensity of our worship should be turned up. Look at this with me. It says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people the sheep of his pasture. The word know that opens this verse is actually a term of confession and is translated in some Bibles as the the word acknowledge. And that's the idea here. Acknowledge that Yahweh is God. Acknowledge that he alone is the only living and true God, that he alone is infinitely perfect and self-existent and self-sufficient. He is God. He is not a man as we are. He's an eternal spirit, incomprehensible, incomparable, and independent. Isaiah 46.9 says it this way, I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Reason number two is that it is he who made us It's he who made us. Our worship overflows because he is our creator. It is he who made us and gave us being. The nations surrounding Israel worshipped idols made by men, but we worship the God who made man. He formed our bodies, the text says, knitting knitting us together in our mother's womb. And we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's Psalm 139. He breathed into us the breath of life. We did not and in fact could not make ourselves. He is our creator. The third reason we're to worship with shouts of joy is because we are his. His. He is our rightful owner by creation. He made us, and to him we belong. And that phrase is actually literally translated, his we are. His we are. As creator, he has an incontestable right to everything, including us. And when we consider that our creator is all-knowing and all-powerful and good and wise, this just increases, it should just increase our joy, and our worship. The fourth reason to worship with gladness is that we are his people. We are his people. He is our sovereign ruler, judge, and lawgiver, but this phrase also speaks to our redemption. See, when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he redeemed them from bondage. He is our redeemer, and we are his people. Isaiah 43, verse 1, actually marries these two ideas together. He says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. You are mine. And this is closely tied to the fifth reason. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the flock of his feeding. It is he who made us and redeemed us. And now we learn that it is he also is the one who provides for us and sustains us. Always doing what is best for his sheep. He leads us. He guides us. He gives us all good things to enjoy. This phrase, the sheep of his pasture, should bring to most of our minds all of the things we learned a few weeks back when we studied Jesus as the good shepherd. So this call to worship in verses 1 and 2 is supported by the five reasons in verse 3. He alone is God. He created us. We belong to him. We are his redeemed people, and he is our good shepherd. Now, in verse 4, the psalmist extends another call to worship. In verse 4, he says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. The emphasis of this verse is clearly upon the assembling of God's people together in the temple. They would assemble to thank God and praise him as a gathered community. And you see the emphasis of that just by the references to the gates and the courts. Enter his gates, enter his courts as these, the gates and the courts were part of the temple structure. And certainly, the psalmist is encouraging each one of us to prioritize church attendance, to be here on Sunday morning. Just as the author of Hebrews did when he wrote, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. That's in Hebrews 10.25. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. I think the psalmist had something else in mind. Pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce agrees that there might be a little something more. And he suggests that that we are called together, even commanded to gather, because something special happens in the praise and thanksgiving of God's people when they're all assembled together. Something special happens when we're all together on Sunday morning. Something that does not happen in the private worship of individuals. I spent a little bit of time reflecting on that this week. And I agree, though I think I would probably say it like this. I would say, it matters that we gather. And when we gather, it matters that you're here. And it matters that you're here every week. And here's why I say that after reflecting. God has intentionally assembled Christ Community Church for a purpose. And he has placed each one of you into this body, this church family body, just as he desired. So it matters that you're here. Because when you're not here, this local body, as God designed it, is incomplete. It can't function optimally as God intended. And I think the deeper point is this. When people from our church are absent from our worship, it's not just their physical bodies that are missing. It's their joy and their gladness and their thankfulness. It's the warmth of their smile. It's their enthusiasm. It's the encouraging words they speak to one another it's the brotherly and sisterly interactions that we enjoy with each other before and after the services all of this the the larger body misses if they're gone the impact that god designed and the impact that god designed and gifted that person to make won't get made now our sunday morning worship will still be rich and meaningful but in a small way the body misses out. And so I will say it again, because God has brought each of us to be a part of this family, this church family, it matters that we're here each and every Sunday. This call to worship in verse 4 is supported by verse 5. And verse 5 provides three reasons to gather together and praise our God. And these three reasons are not about what he has done. Verse 3 talked about what he had, the five things he had done. This verse 5 focuses on who God is. They, the, verse 5 reminds us of God's character. Look at this with me. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever, and his faithfulness continues through all generations." When the psalmist wrote that God is good, this was in stark contrast with the so-called pagan idols of the nations that surrounded Israel. You see, the pagans understood that their gods were angry and selfish. They were unpredictable. They never knew when one of their gods might turn on them and do them harm. But this is not how the God of Abraham revealed himself to his people God revealed himself to be good, the source of every blessing that comes to his people. And he is the final standard of what we even call good. And out of his goodness flow innumerable demonstrations of his mercy and his grace and his patience as he deals with us. Because we are redeemed, but we are yet wayward and not yet fully sanctified as a people. Isn't that true? Part of the reason the psalmist urges us to worship God as our creator and redeemer and shepherd in verse 3 is because those roles and responsibilities have God's goodness at the very core of them. Second, we worship God because His love endures forever. His love is a fountain that never runs dry His love means that he eternally gives himself to others. And he does so not only for his own glory, but also for their benefit. It is in the nature of God to give himself in order to bring about blessing and good for others. It's just in his nature. It's who he is. And unlike the gods of the pagans... Our God's love remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Third and finally, we worship God for his faithfulness, the verse says. His faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said, and he'll always fulfill what he has promised. He can be relied upon, and he will never prove unfaithful to those who trust in his word. This is why Deuteronomy 32.4 says he is a God of faithfulness. And that faithfulness, that reliability, that quality that you can depend upon him, that continues on through all generations. God will not change in that regard. So this second call to worship in verse 4 is reinforced by a reminder of God's character, who he is, that he is good, his love endures forever, and he is faithful to all generations. Well, that's the essence of Psalm 100. And as we invite the Holy Spirit to cultivate thankfulness in our hearts, this Psalm serves as a foundation for us. It reminds us that we give full voice to our gratitude because of what God has done for us, that's verse 3, and of because of who he is, that's verse 5. But before we close this message, Let's take a couple of minutes, and I just want to consider two ideas with you on how we might cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He works to cultivate a thankful heart in each one of us. First idea, we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit by reviewing this psalm, by reviewing this psalm, reflecting on who God is and what He has done. This can be accomplished easily enough by requesting a CD for the sermon or accessing the sermon online so that you can re-listen to it periodically. Or it can be accomplished by simply keeping your sermon notes in your Bible so that you can pull them out and review them from time to time. So often, I don't know if this is true of you, but this is true of me. So often I hear things that I appreciate and agree with. And I think to myself, well, this will be easy to remember right? But before long, the busyness of life and the accumulation of new things that I want to remember push the old things out and I forget. Maybe that's true of you as well. So if we are serious about cultivating a thankful heart, it will require that we review these ideas on a regular basis so that we remember them and put them into practice. Second idea is that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit by preparing our heart each week for Sunday worship. We prepare our heart each week for Sunday worship. Earlier in the message, I suggested that the words of Psalm 100, in those words, the Holy Spirit is calling each individual and churches collectively to turn up the volume on their worship. Not the volume of their sound system necessarily, but the volume of our hearts. And in light of this, I want to ask you to consider how you might begin preparing your hearts for Sunday worship during the week. Can you consider how you might prepare your hearts for Sunday worship during the week? Here's what I'm thinking. If we would begin earlier in the week preparing our hearts for Sunday by reviewing who God is and what he has done, by counting his blessings to us by thinking back through the prayers that he has answered on our behalf for the good things that he has brought into our life that we didn't even think to ask for or by simply recounting the new things that God has revealed to revealed about himself to us maybe that happened in our devotions or in our life group or in the Sunday sermon but if we would do that by the time Sunday arrived our hearts would be full of Even overflowing with praise and worship for who God is and all that He has done. And our hearts would be yearning for an opportunity to pour all of that worship out with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. And I think we would find ourselves eager to gather on Sunday morning, and we would agree with the psalmist who said in Psalm 122 I was glad when they said unto me, Let's go to the house of the Lord. I think a little preparation during the week could have a significant payoff in our own personal lives and it would spill over into our gathered time of worship. I think it would affect not only how we grow to love and anticipate our Sunday morning gatherings, but I think it would also affect how we become more, how we grow and become more Christ-like in the thankfulness of our hearts. And friends, I think God would be really pleased if our whole church took steps to grow in this way. So let's pray, and then the worship team is going to come and close our service with a song. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we want to offer you worship that is filled with joy and gladness You have been so good to us. And your goodness is reflected not just in what you have done, but in who you are, the kind of God that you are. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in my heart in the days ahead. In each week as Sunday approaches, that the spirit would be doing the work in my heart to increase the thankfulness and worship and praise that is present in my heart. And I pray that you would be at work in our whole church family, growing our hearts, expanding our hearts, stretching our hearts so that our worship can grow and give you the praise that you so richly deserve. Lord, as we sing this final song, may our voices be full even though we sing behind a mask. May our hearts be full because of all that you've done and all that you are.